folks that can take pain that's associated with being a truckload shipper and make it go away because you move to an intermodal position. We have a train, we have the drake truck. Oh, by the way, you're going to do a wonderful thing for your environment. There, there, there's not, doesn't take real long to get there. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam M. Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic podcast. For the next few episodes, I will share conversations with top CEOs about the future of the workplace. The pandemic has transformed the way that we work, and we discuss their predictions for the future. I have with me today John Roberts, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc., and he's also, of course, um, on the Board of Directors. He is an alum of our college. We are very, very proud of him and his accomplishments. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. Glad to be here, Matt. Thank you. I, Like I say, I'm, I just remember meeting you a long time ago, and I I don't remember what your title was at the time. I think it was 1995. You came to one of our first meetings. It was before we had the Supply Chain Management Research Center. It was when we were first talking about creating it. And you came to a meeting, and I remember being very impressed with you. It was the first time I'd met you. Um, What were you doing back then? What was your title back then? At that point, I was uh, vice president of marketing strategy for the company. Uh, which was a role that we created coming out of an exercise we had done between Procter and Gamble and Warehouser in a joint bid kind of consolidation of raw materials, packaging materials, and then outbound finished product. And the work we had done really tied engineering and uh, sales and pricing and our design teams together and uh, we like to work. So we kind of, that was a project that ended up being a permanent job or somewhat permanent job for me in 95. I want to, I want to talk with you, John, about strategy, about uh, leadership. <clears throat> but before we get into that, I want to start with a story that I'll never forget. Um, and part of it is the reason I remember it so well is because I know you and I thought this I can see how this would happen, but also I wrote, I co-authored that book with Kirk Thompson, Purple on the Inside, uh, which was a book about strategy and used J.B. Hunt's history as an example of applying strategic thinking to uh, a company. But, um, But I remember this story and I'd like you to tell it a bit because it's so interesting, a great way to start because actually it does incorporate strategy and leadership concepts uh, as well. Um, but it, it, it occurred, and if I get any fact wrong, tell me, um, but it occurred back in 1997, and um, you were on vacation with your wife and two young kids. And J.B. Hunt had acquired a, a group, a, a segment that, basically was a combination of dedicated contract services and final mile. And it was doing about 150 million at the time, I believe. Um, And 
and um, the top people in the company um, of that of that dedicated contract services division uh, segment, I should say, segment moved. They they left, and if if I remember this correctly, Kirk and some other people called you and said, hey, they were doing a field promotion, basically. Hey, guess what? <laughs> You're going to, you need to leave your vacation. You need to run this new segment. Um, is that right? Yes, it is. Back in the date, the time before 95 that we talked about just a minute ago, I was a uh, field salesperson in dedicated and had a fair amount of success in not only selling, but running uh, parts of that business before that move to be vice president of marketing strategy. And what happened, well, I was actually down there with my wife and two kids, but also my my brothers and my, my dad and stepmom. It was an annual trip to Gulf Shores, Alabama. We, we made it uh, many, many years. It was pretty simple trip. Um, and it, it was actually before the days of cell phones. So actually, dad and I were sitting on the beach, having a beer, talking about baseball. And I went in to freshen up our beers, uh, maybe grab some lunch and check my voicemail. And uh, really, literally about 12 or 14 people were all signing off this group that you talked about that we had brought in saying goodbye. And I looked at dad and said, something's up, something weird's happening. One of the voicemails was from Kirk Thompson and Wayne Garrison, then the chair, that you need to call us right away. And so I called in thinking that I might be moving into VP of sales or some role like that. And they said, hey, you're going to be the next president of DCS. I was 32 years old. And uh, by the way, the company plane is on the way to get you. And, and I said, uh, Kirk, Wayne, I, I, I've, with all due respect, I, I'm not making this decision uh, in this vacuum. I, I really need to talk to my wife. And so I, uh, with their surprise, I hung up and went to what was actually a little fun park where Tamara, my wife, had the kids. They were four and two. And uh she, of course, was shocked to see me, and uh, we, we went, we took the kids back to dad's house, and we went to a little crab shack, and she and I sat at a table with a napkin, and we listed the pros and cons of me taking this job, and we together agreed that it was a good decision for our family, knowing that it was probably going to be pretty challenging with 12 or 14 of the top people leaving and I'm going to be the only guy there. And I really don't have any experience running a $150 million division, but together we decided that was a, a good move. And the reason that story has, has held so much value for me over the years is Tamara and I have never really had any uh, stress in our work together because we make decisions together. And, uh, you know, we we started in 97 at 150 million. We ran the company uh, to uh, through 2010, uh, where we got real close to a billion dollars in revenue. And then, as you know, I took a different job uh, starting January 1, 2011.
Well, that's a, that's a remarkable, uh, it says a lot about you and how you operate as a person that you brought your family into this before just making your own decision. Um, leadership, you know, one, one of the, a lot of research shows that a key characteristic of leaders is they're good at gaining alignment and yes. that is getting other people on board. And a key part of that is getting people involved in the decision process. That's right. And That's so true. you, by sitting down with your wife at the crab shack and going through the, uh, advantages and disadvantages, um, you know, you, you were, you were really, even though I know you were do your purpose in doing that was you really wanted your wife's input. You wanted to make the decision together, but in effect it also, you were both on board with whatever decision you came up with. That's exactly right. I didn't and, know, I didn't know as much about that then as I do now, Matt. I just, it felt like it was important not to go off on such a meaningful decision without really her understanding and, and, and being able to say, I really don't want you to do that. If she didn't, uh, didn't tell her the plane was already in the air, any of that stuff. But, uh, you know, it did, it did, it did serve us well. And it taught me a lot about gaining alignment. It's a great observation. Well, you also, um, you're involved in all kinds of things outside of um, uh, J.B. Hunt as well. Of course, you're on my ad executive advisory board, but you're also um, uh, on the Arkansas uh, Children's uh, Board, yes. and you're on the Federal Reserve of Bank, the, of the Bank of St. Louis um, Audit Committee. Um, so you, you, you. Pay attention to your family. You give back to the community, uh, and of course, recently, the the Walton College was named the J.B. Hunt Transport Department of Supply Chain Management, thanks to generous gifts of the company. Um, the 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 gift, the five million dollar gift, of course, endowed the department. But you all have given many millions more than that uh, recently and over the years. Um, so you you really have a broad perspective, and when I when I think about the different segments of JB Hunt, like intermodal, dedicated contract services, integrated capacity solutions, truckload, and um, and final mile, and just how they have grown so much over the years, but they've also played an important role from a portfolio management perspective. Uh, would you mind speaking to that from a strategic perspective? We are great students of history, Matt. And um, when I ran DCS, Dedicated Contract Services, I, I, I learned uh, different aspects of this industry that we serve in terms of resiliency, uh, differentiation, difficulty, capital intensity, um, and, and, it, and it really informs where we make our investments based on what our customers desire and need from us that we can achieve a um, ecosystem like return. So a, a return on that investment to reinvest and those channels, those segments that you mentioned are all not necessarily sequenced to mean 
supply chain management happens. But but as we as we learned in DCS, if we focused on really um, generic business, it would be a lot more volatile than when we focused on more uh, difficult business that had higher service requirements that solved uh, more complex problems for customers. And, and over the years, we've learned that we need the different segments available and growing and healthy to facilitate the, the solution to those problems. But where, where we had challenges, for instance, um, an irregular route truckload, which we started out as an irregular route truckload company, we there were there were real high highs and real low lows. And that's a real capital intense business. And as, over the years, we look at something like intermodal and see that it wasn't as volatile. And it, it didn't present us with the same um, uh, sort of sort of unpredictability that we were living with in our truckload. So you'll notice that we've migrated a lot of the capital intensity out of our trucking business because that's a better way for us to respond. Still serving the customer's needs, but doing it in a way that creates a more healthy ecosystem. Dedicated proved to us that it can be extraordinarily resilient, doesn't present us with the highs and lows, answers real important questions for our customers because dedicated lives real close to our customer's customer. So their dollars, their purchase, and they will behave and respond differently when we're solving a problem that is creating a cash register event. So we really pay attention to that with Final Mile and with uh, ICS. Uh, we've got some work going on right now in Transloading, you've probably read about, that is a continuation of that, understanding the needs of the customer, uh, appreciating whether or not we can compete and, and generate that return. And are we continuing to sort of elongate our, our positioning in supply chain services? Last thing I'll say is, you know, we we paid a lot of attention to the in, what we call induction of inventory, either from production or or from um, import through the supply chain, through distribution and consolidation channels. So you think about intermodal and highway services really providing a holistic answer to inventory movement, all the way to a place where it's ready to be positioned for sale or consumption. That's really where the most youngest division segment that we have is final mile, which is not point of purchase, but point of consumption. And so you can sort of look back at that sequence and see we can handle inventory from, if I may, soup to nuts. And where else can we add on and think strategically about what's missing from that, which I think will be a lifelong journey, honestly. Well, yeah, you keep... Um... I mean, I've I've been following J.B. Hunt since 1994 when I moved here, and it's been remarkable to see. Uh, I, I remember in the newspaper, one of the trade rags of the newspaper was criticizing J.B. Hunt at one point for investing so much in <laughs> containers. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Uh, of course, that was uh, it's funny in hindsight uh, to think that they thought you were uh, buying too many containers uh 
But, you know, it's also interesting to see how you all continue to expand your intermodal offerings. Um, and you mentioned a minute ago the transloading network. Uh, and if I remember correctly, you, I think you added locations in Washington and Texas. It's just recently Laredo and uh, Seattle. And then we have uh, Southern Cal and uh, in, in uh, New Jersey. So we got a pretty good look. We're considering what to do in the Southeast, but those are key points of entry. Well, you know, um, this idea of, you know, transferring international ocean freight uh, into 53-foot containers for rail or road makes a lot of sense. It's expanding your supply chain as a company. Yes, yes indeed. And the portfolio of what, um, and being able to provide drayage uh, as well. Uh, this is something that co the country needs. It's like a, it's clearly a win-win uh, for both the company and the country. Um, it's so critical uh, right now. How, would you mind sharing just a little bit about your decision to get further into that area? Yeah, I'm happy to, Matt. We, um, we're always looking at data. Uh, one of the things that I, I think we're all very proud of is we are very objective when we make decisions. It's, it's, it makes life simpler and it gives us a trail to understand how we got where we are and how we're doing as we go forward. So when we look at the data of demand that is that could fit on our current and potential intermodal networks, we see two key opportunities. One is the freight that moves on the highway systems today in truckload, one truck, one trailer. Generally speaking, if we get up around 800 to 1,000 miles and beyond, we have a very compelling economic uh, discussion. And that's really because it's just physics, right? I mean, a train can handle 400 boxes. It uses a third of the fuel or half the fuel. Uh, friction levels are incredibly low. The networks are, even though today we have some challenges in service, the networks can be very reliable. So uh, that's a source for us and, and really been the primary source for our growth to, to date. We still see a, a lot of opportunity in conversion and, and also, by the way, think with the movement of environmental awareness uh, that we, we feel and see, intermodal continues to be a, a very current part of the discussion. There, there's a different sort of element today that we believe is positive and, and, and will help drive that conversion from highway to rail. But we also study a lot of data on market share. And something that, that, that revealed itself years ago is the number of containers that come in that don't uh, translate. And, and, and it's a staggering number. It's, it's, it's equal to approximately the number of domestic 53s that move on a monthly basis, hundreds of thousands of containers. And in a 40-foot container, we're dealing with incredible inefficiency there. We're taking up space on trains. We're moving containers that are, are way too small for the infrastructure that they could operate on. They uh, do not have a natural networking backhaul system. So when we come in 
to the central U.S. There's nothing going back, so we got to take up another spot on a train. We got to have Drape to do work that isn't generating uh, anything productive. It, on and on, you you know the, the 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 dynamics here, and and so we kept looking for. Um, had anybody been successful transloading? Who are they? What are they? Again, back to the data. Who does this? Do they have an ecosystem that's healthy in terms of generating proper returns on investment that they can put back into the business? And we haven't really found a lot of positivity there. So we've stayed back uh, until just recently when I think the big change was the ship lines sort of changed their perspective on their their 40 foot container and whether they really wanted to go in for two, three, four weeks at a time, or would they rather have it empty at the port so they can go ahead and get it back where it's going? That that that's helped us. Additionally, the ESG dynamics will also play a role here. But we opened a test facility in New Jersey, really with just the the intent to learn. What does this feel and look like? Where are the shortfalls? Could we bring something to the table that isn't there? And we and we found some pretty good uh, developments pretty early. That you mentioned, Dre, uh, chassis management is is a real shortfall in international. We're real good at Dre, and we're real good at chassis management. So we start to apply that thinking. We get more comfortable with it. Same same approach happened with Final Mile. We opened a facility in Tulsa. We opened a facility in Little Rock. We learned the business. Were we good at it? Could we be better than others? Could it be meaningful in scale? And because the raw material, if you will, the, the, the conversion potential is in the hundreds of thousands of loads every month, we know we're dealing with a large addressable market. So you know, we use a term around here called logical adjacency. And what that means is how much of what we think we want to go do is logically adjacent to what we already know how to do. I'll give you a kind of an offline example. We started getting into the agricultural delivery business and dedicated years ago. Um, it was met with a lot of resistance internally from the older management folks that had either worked on a farm or uh, had to do maintenance on farm equipment. And uh, I had to do a pretty good sell job inside to get that going. But the argument was, look, it's a truck, it's a trailer, it's maintenance, a driver, safety, fuel, uh, sprouting, scheduling. The things we don't know are how to offload grain into a feed silo. But 80%, 85% of what we need to know how to do, we already know how to do. And that really opened up the door for us as we looked at doing restaurant delivery because we really like that economic strength that we find in agriculture that we find in food and grocery and so that logical adjacency was applied again here with the uh, cross uh, transloading facility and with with uh, progress in um, New Jersey we opened a facility in Southern Cal and it was it was sold before we even uh, advertised it. So we know we're doing something here that is needed. We think we're pretty good at it with Seattle and, and Laredo. We've got to really sit back and say now, OK, this this model, this test seems to be working. Now talk to me about what we want to see this be in the next three, five and 10 years. And how does it affect the rest of the, the lines that, that we're, we're hoping to feed into?
Well, the adjacency approach to strategy makes a lot of sense. And you all have clearly executed um, on that profitably. Um, so Beck, you mentioned something about ESG. One of our, um, several of our professors, but one of them in particular, Dr. Mark Scott, is really an expert on sustainability and supply chain and logistics. And he, uh, he, we were talking not too long ago and he said, you know, if you look at the sustainability impact of intermodal, it probably dwarfs anything that could be done in electric or hydrogen or anything else. And it's very calculable. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, you can calculate how much benefit. Um, and it really, you know, if you become familiar with, with intermodal, it, it makes sense. It's not hard to understand, but I think the general public and even a lot of shippers probably don't realize that, you know, if they really wanted to improve sustainability and logistics, they could use more um, intermodal. Have you, am I right about that? Or is that? Oh, uh, uh, you and Mark are t completely right. We are limited today by the lack of understanding you mentioned, particularly with shippers, uh, probably a, a weaker than needed calculation system, which we're working on and informing our customers and shippers about those two things, that it's real and we can show you the data. We've had some real service problems with railroads over the last several years, three, four years with PSR and other things that I'm very hopeful and we put our money where our mouths are and our hope is that we will see those challenges resolve in service and reliability. Thus, the reason in March we announced a 40% increase in the size of our container fleet over the next three to five years. Um, I absolutely think that we can position our intermodal services as the most impactful ESG effort until we understand electric vehicles or natural gas vehicles or hybrid vehicles. And, and Matt realized that we stand ready to take on any type of reliable electric vehicle. They don't exist today. So right. while we're waiting, why don't we load up the trains and, you know, do some math on carbon emissions. And uh, we, 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 we're, we're, in a, we're in a very um, opportunistic point here. And we fully plan to take advantage of it. You're, you're exactly right, though. You know, your investment in the container fleet, you say, did you say like to 150,000 units? 150,000 is our first stop. That's a big, isn't that a pretty good size growth? Yeah, we, we when we made that announcement, we were at about 100,000. Okay. Yeah, so that's a lot of containers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, the, the math, again, the data helps inform pretty easily, uh, not, not without deep thought and good debate, but if you look at the, the addressable market between the organic highway conversion and what we think we can do with the transloading, the, the demand with the right service level and the right economics, the demand will be there. 
and the desire to take out the one-to-one relationship, even past the sustainability question. When you're a shipper and you need a tractor and trailer for every single load versus having a relationship with us where we can provide the scale uh, of, of, of trailing equipment in the container and take care of the tractor aspects. Remember the turnover rate in irregular route trucking is probably three to four times the turnover in intermodal trucking, which is again, back to the point of adjusting in these segments, we've been migrating to the higher quality, better paying, lower turnover driving jobs, very, very intentionally. But, but that, that, what that yields is experience and, and the fleet uh, and, and a driver force that can take pain that's associated with being a truckload shipper and make it go away because you move to an intermodal position. We have a train. We have the drake truck. Oh, by the way, you're going to do a wonderful thing for your environment. There, there, there's not doesn't take real long to get there. Well, you're, you're giving them a career path, which has not been provided historically. And those drivers are, are, you know, we probably have today, Matt, a few hundred truckload drivers left, and we have over 25,000 drivers. Okay. They're dedicated and intermodal, and their turnover rate is markedly less. They actually also make a much better wage because the work is much more... uh, forecastable and planable, if you will. So we get better utilization. So they, you know, drivers get paid by their activity, but when they don't have good activity, it doesn't matter what you're paying per mile if you don't give them the miles. In these businesses, we have a better line of sight to that. Yeah, one other thing, and I've followed your intermodal business since I moved here because it's been so interesting. But the other thing I always think of and I is, Yes, it helps with sustainability. It creates a career path for drivers, as you've lined it out. Um, but it also addresses traffic congestion. Totally. Totally right. If there's an article today or yesterday, Matt, I'll send you a link. I actually have it. On the uh, Barstow facility that BNSF is 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 bringing online, this is going to be a, a departure from uh coast uh facilities we have we have um uh, hobart and then there's san burn and colton those are all a little bit more close to the edge barstow is out and it's 4100 acres but in that article it speaks about the impact that barstow can have on los angeles traffic i mean it's a called out element that if we can migrate into use of better rail we get trucks off the road and by the way there's congestion there's safety there's you know all, all kinds of uh, 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 relief really that are presented when we can get on trains one thing i love about this story too is this is an example of how business makes society better this story Right. By by J.B. Hunt seeking to make money in this business. Right. You're making drivers better off. The environment better off. And traffic congestion 
better. And and I see this a lot. A lot of times, you know, I don't think people, I, of course, I'm dean of a business school, so I'm constantly paying attention to all kinds of business. But that is something we should celebrate more. It's 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 something that no bureaucrat or politician could figure out. Yet it happens. Yes. Yes. Happens naturally. It happens without subsidy. It happens through the natural course of capitalism and, and providing service to customers that they need, that they're willing to pay for, that generate the proper return. And it it, it is very self-sustaining. It's It's so amazing how many, seriously, as you know, I've done this every week for four years, and I've heard so many examples of this. And I think, again, intermodal is something, unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that, man, this is addressing these social problems in many different ways that no one would be smart enough to figure out, but but the market really figured it out. Um, so, so, John, one thing that came up a lot when I was writing the book, um, Purple on the Inside, was the culture of J.B. Hunt, because a lot of companies were around at the same time uh, J.B. Hunt was around, and yet J.B. Hunt has done a lot of things that are remarkable. Um, and it it's, of course, a big part of that is because of the culture. And a lot of times we define culture as shared beliefs, you know, shared beliefs about what's important, what our priorities are, where we're going, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but I've noticed that this is a strength of the company. Would you mind speaking to a healthy culture? Yeah, the, the beginnings, I think, having been here almost 35 years myself, I, I got to see a lot of the early stages of the company. And we were very, very uh, involved with the family, uh, particularly Mr. and Mrs. Hunt. And and what we, we sort of saw a dynamic. We actually just celebrated this last week in our visionaries and our trailblazers. And we sort of looked at Mr. Hunt as a visionary. And we, we just spoke a lot about intermodal. Uh, that's, that was a very visionary idea. We were sort of looked upon as as maybe foolish, maybe we weren't right, but you know, Mr. Hunt had a great entrepreneurial charge that um, we we have nurtured and it's very much a part of our culture. When when I ran dedicated, I was encouraged to be creative. I wasn't held down or held back. I Kirk always uh, said, hey, you do whatever you think will work and then if we don't like it, we'll talk about it, not bring that stuff to me and let me approve it. And that that's a big deal because that really permeates. I think the story we talked about um, with with my decision making and, and counseling with my wife is a result of being from a family oriented business. And uh, we've tried to promote that. I've, I've often uh ask people about what else you're doing and how are your kids? Are you coaching? Are you going to your dance recitals? Are you making sure? Because Matt, I believe that if you're happy at home, you're going to be able to do better work for us here. Frankly, if home's not super happy, it's probably going to translate. So let's, 
let's embrace that. So we have kind of this entrepreneurial free thing. Make sure you kind of figure out how to do that, but it's okay to dream. And then the the trailblazer is the Mrs. Hunt side of things. In fact, when she came to see us, she wore a black cowboy hat and we gave her a microphone and she said to the group (laughs) that we had gathered, she said, I want you to understand that JB was a visionary and he wore a white hat, but there's somebody that has to wear a black hat. And that was, <laughs> but, but, you know, we still enjoy her. Uh, we bring her in every chance we can. We know that our culture, which they built, which Wayne and Kirk nurtured and guys like Paul Burgeon, Bob Ralston, all helped us continue to develop is a, a, a source of energy for us that we have to be very careful with. Driver Appreciation Month, we go all out to let our drivers and their families know how much we appreciate them. We had Mrs. Hunt comment last week, and 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 Shelly Simpson asked her, what do you want to say to the drivers? And she got almost solemn, and she said, I know how hard your job is, and I know what sacrifices you're making and your family's making, and I want you to know we respect that. We, we can hear that still today ringing through our culture. And we've added to that, COVID was a great test, Matt, but we've added to that, everybody here needs to be appreciated. And and with COVID, when that hit in 2020, we we gathered in our boardroom right behind me here and we said, okay, we gotta go home. And our priority is the health and well-being of our people and honoring the commitments we've made to our customers. If we can do those two things, we will be successful. And I just see it continue to grow and build. I hear it. We just did an engagement survey with every single employee, 89% participation rate. We're just way in the details, doing every round table we can get our hands on. And I'm convinced today that 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 origination of entrepreneurialism, visionary thinking, trailblazing management, and and sort of a family orientation has has thrived, has grown, and is at the center of, of all that we are doing that is, is, is bringing success that it's bringing. Well, John, thank you so much for taking time to share with us. Um, really appreciate it. Glad to be here, Matt. Always good to see you. On behalf of the Sam and Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C.